Blog Talk Radio. changes occurring on the planet and in nature are caused by us, by you and me, by human activity. The constant burning of fossil fuels in our cars and our power plants is the biggest driver of these changes, and we know it, and we're still doing almost nothing to change it. It's suicide, which is why I've named these series of interviews Suicide Earth. Although it's more like murder-suicide, since we're driving so many species into extinction, besides endangering our own survival. The most relevant authors on the planet these days are the people who are writing about this, trying to get people's attention about the fact of what we're doing to our own nest, this world we live in, the only world we have. So far, we've talked about overpopulation about how technology has caused us to disconnect from the natural world, and what some of the things are that we need to do right away to prepare for the coming changes. But fiction helps in the same way. Folks who would never plod through some of the more serious books find pleasure in reading a pure adventure story. And if that story also includes constant references to climate change, It helps in bringing the everyday person into the fold of those who understand climate change is now simply a fact of life. Glenn Schwartz has written such a fiction novel. Published in 2020, it's the story of a TV meteorologist who has the power to actually change the weather. But he discovers that there are consequences for doing so. Glenn, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for the invite. I'm always glad to talk about this subject. Now, we need to be careful not to turn this into a confab of old newsmen. You've, you've spent over 40 years as a meteorologist, and I'm an old broadcast newsman myself. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm uh, born and raised in Philadelphia, an area that has quite a bit of changing weather. And a lot of us meteorologists get started as children with a fascination in weather, and I'm one of those ever since I was in the fifth grade. That's all I ever wanted to do. And one of the things that started me on this was I liked to play baseball as a kid, and we got into a stretch where we got rain outs like four or five games in a row. It just got so frustrating. And so I decided that when I grew up, I was going to build a machine where I could turn the rain off so I could play baseball. And, of course, I found out quickly I couldn't do that. The next best thing is to learn how to predict it. Okay. Well, your book is titled The Weathermaker. Uh, Tell us what you can about it without giving too much away. (laughs) Well, as you said, the main character, which is not – patterned after me, is a uh, young rising star in the television business, Uh, tall, handsome, women love him, he's got a tremendous future, 
And then all of a sudden, one day, there's a storm coming, and he's live on TV, and he holds his arms up in a certain way to stop the rain, and it stops. And he then says, yeah, I did it. And everybody thinks he's crazy or his ego has gotten to him. And what's wrong with this guy? And at the TV station, they're going crazy trying to figure out what to do or what to say. We have to get him to apologize, to say that he got carried away or he's gone through some kind of personal troubles. We can't let this hold or else he's going to ruin his career and ruin our station. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. I did stop the rain. And I can stop the rain. And so now what I've done is with my background in TV weather and in the TV business and in the science itself, I take that premise and then go, what would happen if, this is called speculative fiction, what would happen if a person had that power? How would the TV station react? How would the outside world react? How would other people and businesses try to take advantage of that? Just imagine if you're a car dealer and you have a big sale on the weekend and it's supposed to rain. Wouldn't you love to hire this weather maker to come in and stop the rain so you could sell your cars? If you're in the insurance industry, one of the biggest industries in the world, most dependent, what if you could find somebody who could steer the hurricane away from the big city? How much would you be willing to pay to have that happen? We have hurricanes that cause $100, $150 billion worth of damage. How much would you pay for that not to happen? So there are a lot of other complications related to that too, but that was the purpose of doing this and then also using it as a way to talk about the consequences of trying to fix the climate. If you can fix the climate, what would happen? What could happen? We only have one planet. We can't be doing certain kind of experiments here. And our, our protagonist uh, does become rich and famous and worldwide, uh, world known, and 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 travels the world to uh, to attack uh, various uh, problems in in various areas. And uh, but but uh, there's 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 fallout. There are consequences. Yeah, well, partly is partly the reason is that people want to take advantage of this power. This is the only person in the world that they know of that has this power. So it's not like they can go to somebody else. It's not as if they can go negotiate. And all over the world, there are these extremes and disasters related to weather. And every country that has any kind of income 
would love to get this guy to come and, and help save them. So there's this pull of the rich countries trying to get them to save them from all this money, but there's also the poor countries too. These terrible droughts in Africa end up killing people. Well, if you could make it rain, how many lives could you save? So where's the priority? What do you do? Where do you go? How do you get convinced to go to Africa? Well, in my case, in The Weathermaker, it's the most beautiful, sexiest actress in Hollywood who is concerned about this drought. And so she ends up seducing the weather maker to try to get him to go over to Africa and, and do it for charity as opposed to going to Europe and doing it for millions of dollars. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's an interesting tale, and uh, the the ins and the outs, and what happens to this poor guy, and uh, he needed he needed an agent. <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. But the agent has no <laughs> no background. What? How much do you charge? And and even the weather maker doesn't know. What what do you charge for? A service like this, you're the only person in the world who could do it. You're preventing a $100 billion disaster. So those insurance companies are willing to pay a lot of money, get your own private plane, fly wherever you want, uh, do your thing, and we'll flag it to the next place. We'll pay you all your expenses, buy an expensive condo, but whatever you want, whatever you need, we we're going to help you because if we pay a million, we're going to save a hundred million. And and wherever he and wherever he ended up going, uh, uh, and if he were if he were able to accomplish uh, the immediate goal, there were there were side effects to other other nations or peoples nearby and he ended up uh he ended up as both a loved and hated figure. Yeah, that's part of the uh complexity of the book, but it's also the complexity of the earth. We are all connected. The atmosphere has no boundaries. We have no borders up there. And so what you do in one country potentially can affect the country downwind and the one downwind from that. Look what happens when one of those giant volcanoes goes up. If it goes up high enough, it spreads ash all over the world. It can cool off the entire planet for a couple of years. And it's happened. So you can have it on the small scale too. There are lots of different countries and, and individual states that in trying to break a drought have paid companies to go up in planes and put stuff in clouds to either help make it rain or make it rain more to help prevent the drought. But then what about the state next door? They, and this has actually been the case, one state ends up suing the other 
for stealing their rain. Well, that rain was meant for us, and you made it fall on your state. So we didn't do anything wrong. Why should we suffer? Because you're changing what God intended. And this has happened in the Middle East, too, with efforts of weather modification that part of the difficulties between some of the countries is you're stealing our rain. And, and rain and water are incredibly valuable in many parts, and it's going to become even more so. Let's talk about that, because uh, uh, you, you obviously did some, some research in the weather modification for this, and I, and I did some sub- subsequently, too, because you, I, I was very interested. Uh, you, you, I, had, I had never heard of Project Popeye which obviously was happening even while I was serving my time in Vietnam. Yeah. Yep. Um, And the rest of the country didn't know about it at the time either. It was only later when they held hearings in Congress um, that it was discovered that the U.S. military had a, a program of weather modification to try to flood the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Now, that's a part of the world, as you know, that can get a lot of rain, but what if you can add 50% to that lot of rain? Then you could get all kinds of flooding and prevent the enemy from moving around very much, get them bogged down. And so that was actually a weapon of war. And... and. Uh... Let's see. Uh, one of the things I discovered was that in 1953, they formed a President's Advisory Committee on Weather Control. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, does the uh, American Meteorological Society have any ethical statements regarding weather modification? Well, I've over the years, it's obviously a subject that has changed and we've learned a lot more over the years, but there have been attempts to modify the weather for centuries. And this goes back a long, long way. And the the Russians have have done it to shoot rockets up into the clouds to try to uh, make it rain. There are certain things you can do to break up fog um, that they've done in England. And in the United States, for example, and I've worked at the National Hurricane Center many, many years ago, and they told me a story, which is a true story, that they were practicing on uh, cloud seeding. This is back in the 40s, after World War II. And the theory was if they could seed a hurricane, they could make it weaken. And so they did this experiment with this hurricane that was offshore. And it was headed out to sea, so they felt it was okay, safe to do it. And they did their seating, and then all of a sudden the hurricane makes a left turn and hits the Venice, 1947. And now the uh, do we admit that we did that, or we just keep our mouths shut? I think we'll keep our mouths shut. 
And so this was not known. It was just kind of a rumor for decades. But scientists have known for a long, long time that humans can alter the weather. We can add to rainfall. We need clouds to start with. You can't do it in a clear sky. But if the conditions are close to raining, but not quite there, you can juice up the act wasn't going to naturally, or make it rain more. In the, uh, I, I found out there's a fellow named James Espy in the 1830s who was a meteorologist, and <laughs> he he uh, he claimed that uh, we should we should light huge fires along the Appalachian Mountains, and that that would provide the heat, the smoke, and and the particulate matter needed to trigger storms and enhance the nation's rainfall. He pitched his idea to Congress. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And there are lots of scientists that have come with, up with lots of ideas. But one of the problems is that you don't know what the consequences are going to be. Let's say um, there were rainmakers back hundreds of years ago who did this as a business. And they would go to a town, and there was a movie in the 50s, a Burt Lancaster movie called The Rainmaker, which was basically talking about this, uh, this guy who would do this. And he would go and get, make some rain to help with a drought, and they would get paid. He would say... Well, you, you give me a certain amount of money if I give you a certain amount of rain. Well, that rain might have happened naturally, but they don't know that, so he's going to get paid and whenever it rains. But what happened one time was he makes this deal with a city, and then there's so much rain that there's a disastrous flood and people die in the flood. And then uh, he kind of skipped town and, and maybe wasn't heard from again. But we know these things can happen, but there are consequences. Why, who is going in today's world to intentionally set fires to create particulate matter to seed it in rainfall? Like, you're not setting a fire in my state. <laughs> That's called pollution. Yeah, we want to stop fires. We don't want to set them. And if exactly. you're going to set them, you know, in California, it's just for long-term uh, fire prevention. It's not to help produce rain. So, yeah. you know, one of the things you're talking about now in, in uh, the world stopping the warming from uh, occurring so fast is, well, let's throw stuff up in the atmosphere to block some of the sun's rays. Okay, that would theoretically work, but you're going to throw pollution up into the atmosphere? That's what we've been trying to stop for the last 50 years. So, you know, you can't win in a case like this. This geoengineering, they're calling it all geoengineering, some of these crazy ideas. One of the, Another thing that I discovered that I had never known about uh, was in 1972, a U.S. government rain-making operation in South Dakota was followed by a disastrous flood 
It came under attack in a class action lawsuit. One cloud seeding airplane was even shot at. Uh, a rapid city, I know, and, and those areas mm-hmm. were devastated. And uh, they, they claimed that the, that the cloud seeding had nothing to do with it, of course, uh, that there, there was just a big, huge weather system coming in. But if there was a big, huge weather system coming in, why were they cloud seeding? Well, because they're trying to increase the rainfall. You know, if you're in a drought, one inch of rain is great, but two inches of rain is even better. Uh, but part of the problem there is how do you prove that it was the cloud seeding that caused the flooding? And number two, in the, in the reverse, if you're in the business of cloud seeding, how do you prove that you did it? And that it wasn't natural. Yeah, yeah. So that's what one of the things that's really, really hard about the science of this. And again, when I was at the Hurricane Center, um, there was a whole floor be- below us that was devoted to the research in hurricane modification. They called it Project Storm Fury. And again, the theory is you go take these planes out, you seed the clouds and you break up the hurricane formation. Well, they were convinced, and some I even talked to one some of these guys personally, and they convinced that they could do what they said they could do. But there aren't enough hurricanes to to prove it. In science, you need a big sample size. You just can't say, oh, we got three storms and two of them uh, broke up or weakened, so therefore our system works. Well, how do you know they didn't weaken naturally? You need a bigger sample of that. Well, you can't just find hurricanes every other day of the week. You can't be, after 1947, you can't be seeding hurricanes anywhere near a coastline because who knows what might happen. And one of the subplots in the weather maker is, is indeed that this happens. They, the weather maker sees a hurricane or does what he does to make the hurricane weaken, but it changes direction. And even though overall it saves the country money, the place that got hit, they didn't deserve to get hit by a hurricane. They don't care if the big city got saved. Like, who, who did this? How, how can you be God and decide where to send these storms? There's so many issues related to it. Let's talk about some of this geoengineering because uh, the, uh, you, you, uh, the, the, the problem, as, as you said earlier, there are no... There are no borders or boundaries up there, and if you if you change something in the atmosphere, you're changing something worldwide. You're changing something for everyone, and yet there's there, these geoengineering ideas keep coming up. Rather than stop, just stop burning fossil fuels, which is what we <laughs> got, what we what we need to do. Uh, they're talking about you know. Uh, all these fixes to try and 
and, and forestall the problems. You mentioned the aerosol injection into the atmosphere, which would you know, cause uh, less of the sunlight to get down uh, and so it would cause less heating. Uh, I've got a list here of some of these other things. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's marine cloud brightening. Do you know about marine yeah. cloud brightening? Well, they supposedly hold... they yeah, yeah. Supposedly they, uh, they uh, just over the ocean, they will yeah. they will uh, somehow or another they they will inject things into the clouds that are over the ocean, which will then make those clouds brighter and therefore you know uh, uh, raise the albedo. And uh, and and so they will. There will be more reflection, and therefore the oceans won't warm as much. Uh, again, that's 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 a global thing. If you start doing something like that, they talk about high albedo crops and buildings. If we just painted everything white, <laughs> that would that would help a lot. Uh, there, there's the yeah. the ocean. The ocean mirror. Have you heard of the ocean mirror? <laughs> they're, uh, they're talking about uh, if if they were. I don't know how they would do this on any grand scale, but if they could if they could stir up the ocean and and make the surface bubbles, bring a lot of bubbles <laughs> to the surface, <laughs> then that would also cause more reflection and less heating. How about this cloud thinning on the cirrus level? You see, all, all of those things could theoretically have an impact, but the scale that would be needed to do something like that is unimaginable. That, yeah, yeah some really, really smart people have come up with interesting theories, but there's no practicality in it number one. And number two, even if there was a way you could do that, should we even be trying to mess with the atmosphere not knowing what the consequences are going to be? And yeah. as you say, there is no planet B. This is it. We got one shot at this. And we're going to be playing with experiments on monumental scales with the only atmosphere we have. And this is not just some crackpots doing this. No. The person most recently uh, being quoted and talking about this is Bill Gates. Yes. He's got the number one book on the bestseller list, and I've read it, and it's a great book. And there's a lot of terrific information in it. But one of the things that he's doing or planning to do with some of his billions is to do research into geoengineering. But you see, he's an engineer. Engineers engineer things. The climate scientists who understand the, the whole process are, are just aghast at the idea of even giving people the thought 
that there is a possibility of doing this. So we don't have to eliminate fossil fuels so quickly. If we get in trouble, we'll just use some of Bill Gates' research and go throw stuff up into the atmosphere and we'll cool it down. And so it's a last resort, yeah. We don't want to give people an idea that there's a last resort. This is it. This is our chance to stop the warming to the extent that there is going to be just an unbelievable amount of catastrophes at some point in the future. You know, we'll argue about how bad and how soon it's all going to happen, but it's going to happen. And you can't be distracted by the idea of being able to save us at the last minute, like some kind of Hollywood movie. It doesn't work that way. Let me just throw in a couple of uh, more of the ideas that have been put out there. Uh, Space sunshades. If we send up a whole (laughs) bunch of little mirrors and put them in orbit around the Earth, and they would reflect the uh, sunshine back. There's there's, uh, silica beads. Uh, if if you were to uh, uh, cover all of the glaciers and Arctic regions with with these little glass beads, uh, they they would they would make sure that that there's reflection because right now the albedo is changing as the as the ice is melting. They're talking about uh, an underwater seabed curtain uh, around Antarctica, you know, much like kelp, uh, to keep uh, to keep the the uh, warmer water away from Antarctica, so it won't it won't. I mean, uh, even if you could get something like this started, what happens the day you decide it needs to stop? How do you stop it? How do you retract it? You can never stop it. You have to keep doing this. The whatever you're doing to cut down on the sunlight, you have to keep doing, and. In some cases, you may have to increase it over time to try to balance things out. But in a way, the atmosphere is a very fragile thing. It's six degrees cooler, and we're in an ice age. You know, we're only six degrees Celsius warmer than an ice age. You warm up six degrees and you have monumental catastrophes on the warming side. So we have a very sensitive thermostat up there, and we start messing with that, and we go, oh, a little bit too far. Now all of a sudden we're headed toward an ice age. You can't just flip the switch and and regulate this like you can with your heat in your house. The scale of this is so immense, and the lack of knowledge. You can't just simulate this stuff in a computer and assume it's going to work that way out in the real world, in case you've uh, ever known of a forecast that goes bad. We cannot perfectly simulate the atmosphere. 
Well, I have been happy in the past 10 years to notice that the, uh, the, the meteorologists are finally coming around. For the longest time, uh, it seemed like the people who should have been speaking about uh, what is happening out there uh, were saying nothing. I'm I'm curious. Give us a uh, give us a decade by decade blow of your own personal experience. Mm-hmm. What you have what you have seen, what you have noticed, yeah. what you know has happened. Okay, um, that's a that's a really good question and and uh, setup because you're absolutely right that of the scientists that meteorologists themselves were as a group, about the last to come on board with this agreement on the science. Partly because we experience such variability, natural variability in the weather, everywhere in the world except perhaps San Diego and some islands where the weather's the same all the time. So it is very difficult to separate the trend from what we call the noise, the natural variations. And as I say a lot, what we call normal is just the average of extremes. Our normal high in Philadelphia today is 72. If it was 72 for 20 days in a row, that would be abnormal. So as meteorologists, we are conditioned to the variability of the atmosphere. So let's go back into the 1980s. And I've been a meteorologist since the early 70s, so I was already around for a while. And Al Gore and some scientists are talking and testifying in front of Congress Remember James Hansen in the 80s saying mm-hmm. that the global warming has already started. Well, back in the, yep. in the 80s, I thought that was just a gross exaggeration and even to the level of irresponsible because the weather and even the climate changes over time. How do you prove that humans are doing this? Well, As we got into the 90s, we started seeing some more extremes. There's a little bit more agreement on this. And back in the 90s, now, we're talking about there was no political difference on this. Republicans and Democrats alike were talking about the potential warming of the planet, 90s and into the beginning of, of this century. But there was this debate about whether the earth was warming at all. And so the instruments on the ground were saying it was warming. But this group in Alabama that measured, supposedly, the temperature trends by satellites, well, that's going to be more precise. And the satellites say it's not warming. So therefore we had this debate. Well, it turns out it was the people with the satellites that figured it wrong. They made mathematical errors 
And as soon as that was discovered, that flipped the switch to me. That, okay, now I know it's definitely warming. We know about the theory of greenhouse gases and what it, they do, and we've known about that for a couple hundred years, and it's basic science, and it's as established as gravity, and now, yes, it's happening. It is warming, and therefore it is humans that are contributing to this. It was really like a flip that switched with me in the mid-'90s, and I've been trying for 20-plus years to get a lot of my fellow meteorologists on board with this thinking, but there's also a natural stubbornness that a lot of us uh, meteorologists have, and once you come to a conclusion and you publicize it and you announce it to the world, it's a hard thing to back off and to say, no, maybe I was wrong. Maybe the other guys were right. That for some people, took a long, long time, especially when it became political. And it became political, for better or worse, related to Al Gore and an inconvenient truth, because all of a sudden it was, if Al Gore's for it, I have to be against it. So any meteorologist who politically was thinking like that would not look at the evidence and until it became so overwhelming, which it has just in the past five, ten years, that even a lot of the skeptics, as they called themselves, have come over to the idea of, yes, it's warming, yes, it's us, Yes, it will continue to get worse unless we do something. Have you witnessed any specifics that you could bring up? Well, the, the most obvious to me, well, first of all, the meteorolo meteorological groups in the world that have decided that the research, the most obvious things are heat, and drought, that that is so well established, it is considered fact. The rainfall, having more flooding, worse flooding, that you put more warmth in the atmosphere, you got more water vapor, you got more water vapor, you got more rain when it rains. That's all pretty established in general. So when I look back at the Philadelphia records, the wettest hour in Philadelphia history, the wettest day, the wettest month, the wettest season, the wettest year, all occurred in the last 10 years or so. Mm. And that's true all over the country, all over the world. The thing that's most physically obvious is what has happened to hurricanes. Now, this is one of my areas of special interest over the decades, and the rate of intensification of these storms is just something that didn't used to happen. 
you didn't get a storm to go from a tropical storm to a Category 5 in two days. Ever. It just didn't happen. And we've had weather satellites since 1970. It's not like we're just now figuring out about hurricanes. We can determine pretty accurately the intensity of a hurricane just by the satellite pictures. This guy that I work with in Miami, it's called the Dvorak technique, where you look at the picture and you can tell if it's a Category 3, Category 4, even whether it's 110 miles an hour, 120 miles an hour. It's not like we don't have enough evidence. It is so obvious. It has slapped us in the face in the last decade or so. And it is scary as hell to think about what's going to happen 10 years from now and 20 years from now, 30 years from now. This is happening faster than a lot of the climate scientists were saying it was going to happen. It keeps happening Same thing with the ice melt in the Arctic. It's happening faster. You know, computer models are not going to be perfect, and a lot of the skeptics say, well, the models could be wrong and, and exaggerate this. Yeah, well, the models are wrong in many cases, underestimating the impact and the changes. Yeah. Uh, Glenn, I, I, I failed. Uh, you said that hurricanes were a special interest of yours. I, I, I haven't uh, told the audience yet that your, your longtime nickname is Glenn Hurricane Schwartz. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, I've never known. Uh, you know, I have a, I, you know, I have a background in that. Like as I said, I worked at the National Hurricane Center back in the 1970s. Um, but I was the first storm chaser for the Weather Channel uh, back in the 80s. And so, what what you see on the Weather Channel and Jim Cantori and uh, and lots of others there. Mike Seidel is another one who's been doing this for decades now, that I was the first one to do it. And I showed video of that at my New York station. The the Weather Channel, and the anchorman just started calling me Hurricane when he saw me blown around in one. Yeah. Well, without giving anything away, you pretty much promised us a sequel, a sequel to this story at the end of the Weathermaker. I hope to see more of those consequences of meddling with the weather in your sequel. Well, absolutely. And one of the reasons that I haven't gone ahead and written the uh, sequel already is that this science just keeps changing. So I, wanna, I want it to be up to date at the time it's published. See, I started this book, this book The Weathermaker, 14 years ago. It was oh the idea and my first draft, 14 years ago. And there wasn't much of an interest back then and concern about weather modification and geoengineering and, and, and all of this stuff. So now that the science has gotten to be 
interested. I finally got a publisher who was interested. But over the years, I had to rewrite this a few times because the science just kept getting stronger and stronger. And so I had to change my language in practically every page. So I don't, I don't want to actually get the exact book written until I know that it's coming and so that I won't have to keep changing it down the road because things are going to happen in the next few years that are not anticipated. And, yeah. and the thing that I'm most proud of as a weather maker is that the science is accurate. The, my slogan is, the story is fiction, the science is real. And I want to keep yeah. it that way. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your time with us here. Let's hope your book and your future books brings a few more folks into the fold. Good luck to you. Thank you very much. And the more people that buy the book, the uh, more inclined we are to get those sequels out. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. Glenn Hurricane Schwartz is a retired meteorologist who started at the Weather Channel and spent the bulk of his career on the air in Philadelphia. His book, The Weathermaker, published by Milford House Press, just came out in 2020. It's available at Amazon, the Sunbury Press website, everywhere books are sold. So whether it's fiction or serious books of fact, the authors that are publishing these works constitute the most relevant authors on earth right now because they're all writing about the most relevant issue on earth right now, the ongoing human-caused destruction of our environment. My next interview will be with another fiction author who gives us a picture of what the United States would look like if almost none of it was any longer fit to live in. It's all part of what I'm calling Suicide Earth, because we're not just killing us. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.